0: Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me an X post. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover. Let's get right to it. Here to dive deeper into the Senate and talk about a new book he's edited celebrating the late George Cardinal Pell, Pell Contramundum, is the President Emeritus of the Acton Institute, Father Robert Sorico. He joins us from Rome. Father, thank you for being here. Before we get to the book, I want to get your take on a few other happenings around the Senate. Two bishops from China left the Assembly earlier than scheduled this week yes. due to what was billed as pastoral concerns in the home diocese. Pope Francis appointed them to the Synod himself. They were chosen, of course, from a pre-approved list by the Chinese Communist government. This premature exit was similar to the one that occurred at a Synod gathering in Rome back in 2018, shortly after the consummation of that infamous Vatican-China agreement. What is the message being sent here, in your estimation?
1: Evidently, the message is that the... uh the Chinese Communist government doesn't think this is important enough for them to have people here for too long a period of time. Uh, you remember that when Cardinal Zen came for the funeral of Pope Benedict, he was allowed five hour, five days. So he arrived, went directly from the airport to the funeral. Uh, the next day met with the Pope and then went back to the airport and got back to China. So uh, I think it's a, a slight well,
0: it also might indicate uh, something about the nature of the secret terms of that agreement with Rome. It, it it feels like it's a who's the boss kind of game being played here.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, talk about secrecy. I mean, the whole uh, the whole discussion at the Senate is is very complex. Uh, the whole method and the way in which they do it, and then they keep tapping down on uh, people. Uh, not being open and speaking um, their hearts and their mm-hmm. minds.
0: Yeah, no, it's an amazing, uh, you know, uh, confluence of influences as well as uh, suppression of some information and then uh, you know, overexposure of others. Father, I spoke with Robert Royal about this earlier. Right. The idea of priorities. Pope Francis has refused to meet with key cardinals, including Cardinal Zen. Uh, I know reporters who've requested interviews as well with the pope all of which he's refused, contrast that with the lengthy meeting he had this week with dissident Catholic nun, Sister Janine Gramick of New Ways Ministries, and even Hollywood star Whoopi Goldberg, yes. who uh, told him she's taking nuns into the 21st century. Father Sirico, your take on these choices right. the Pope makes with his time, and given your knowledge of media and business How damaging is this to the optics of the papacy as well as in the midst of this Senate?
1: Well, of course, from my perspective, it's damaging. I'm sure from another perspective, this is exactly what the holy father wants to project that he's sending a message without saying anything without making an argument just by the selection of the people he chooses to meet with and generally the people who are giving uh, meditations and reflections during the course of the uh, synod so this mm-hmm. is very mm-hmm. well calibrated really what do you think that message is what do you think he's trying to convey without saying i I think he's trying to say the church is on the move. <laughs> the question is and and he he really developed this thought recently in one interview where he talked about uh, the church has to change it has to go forward yeah and it needs to leave behind certain things and the The problem is that we don't have the kind of boundaries and the safeguards in place as to what is it that's going to change i mean can can the church uh, create the idea of a fourth person of the blessed trinity i mean i am sure the holy father is going to say no to that but what are the criteria how how do you know how do you discern mm-hmm. an authentic development from an aberration right
0: yeah And cardinal newman and others have been very clear on what the pattern of that development would look like this doesn't seem to satisfy it but anyway uh, i need to get your thoughts on your friend Chinese Catholic freedom fighter Jimmy Lai. Jimmy's been a prisoner, of course, viewers of this yes. show know, a prisoner of the Chinese Communist government for over a thousand days now, reaching that milestone at the end of September. Yes. Lai is now 75 years old. Father, you produced this fantastic documentary, The Hong Konger, about Jimmy Lai. How is he doing? And do you see him ever being released at this point?
1: As a matter of fact, we just had a premiere of the Hong Konger here in Rome to a packed house, including about, um, I I suppose there were eight uh, ambassadors who were present, a good bit of media, and the people were really moved by this. Um, The sad thing is, now they've moved his trial, it was supposed to take place right about now in October, but they moved the trial to December, and if I'm not mistaken, it's the 18th of December, and uh, you ask me if I think he'll ever be out, um, I pray so, I've been working very hard to raise the awareness of his struggle and encouraging people to uh, call to free Jimmy Lai, but... It doesn't look very good. I think if we hear that he is extradited to mainland China, I think that that says everything that will be said on the subject.
0: Father, given the Vatican-China agreement, how does Jimmy Lai's witness contrast with the Vatican's seemingly permissive attitude toward
1: this dictatorship in China? Well, I, you know, it, it's a stark contrast, isn't it? And it's not just the dictatorship in China. I mean, you have, uh, just today, uh, I think it was 12 priests who were released from Nicaraguan, uh, prisons, uh, and exiled to Rome. The bishop who was arrested is, is elected to stay. Uh, in Nicaragua, mm. uh, there's relative silence about that. I haven't heard any press uh, yep. coverage or any Vatican statements on that. So we see this as a pattern. the The thing is that Jimmy Lai is giving witness. He's a white martyr. In fact, in the book which we'll talk about in a moment, Cardinal Gracias yep. from uh, uh, Bombay, uh, who described, uh, referred to Cardinal Pell that George way. Cardinal Pell is a white martyr. And I think that Jimmy Lai is a white martyr as well. Yeah, yeah,
0: you're getting ahead of me, Father. But let's move on to the book. Uh, You edited this new book. It celebrates the thought of the late George Cardinal Pell, Pell Contra Mundum, Pell Against the World. In it, you highlight Cardinal Pell's role as a defender of orthodoxy in chaotic and confusing times. I mean, he certainly was a prophet. Uh, I spoke with him on the show in June of 2021. And I asked Cardinal Pell then about the German synodal way, but not even he could imagine that the aberrations in the German church would soon be embraced by the global synod in Rome as well. Watch this. I don't know whether
2: abortion and euthanasia are on the books. Uh, I hope not. But uh, certainly they want to change the teaching on, uh, some do, on sexual morality by blessing homosexual unions. Uh, They object to the tough teachings of Jesus on uh, adultery and against remarriage. Uh, They seem to have a different list of uh, qualities that are necessary for the fruitful reception of the sacraments, different from that of St. Paul. And some of them would um, want to have an order of women priests. Now, uh, we can't have a German set of the Ten Commandments, and we uh, can't have a uh, a set of uh, women priests in Germany and nowhere, nowhere else. Uh,
0: Father, your reaction to that, particularly that line, they want to change church teaching. It's really haunting.
1: Yeah, it, it's so good to hear his voice. And isn't it remarkable that uh, you said that was in June and here... It could be the the front page of the news today because now it's moved not just from Ger- it's moved from Germany to the universal church because this is exactly the kind right. of thing with great ambiguity too, because at the beginning they said, No, we're not here to change church teaching. But now as we've gone through two and almost three weeks of the synod, we see this coming to the fore, that we're laying the foundations, one cardinal said, for the changes that will take place and will address those concrete changes he said said, next year, because remember that the Senate is in two parts, so there'll be, in 2024, there'll be another part of it. But that's exactly why I edited this book. I was with the Cardinal, um, you know, quite a bit just before he died, and um, these were the concerns that were uh, on his mind that he wrote about. In fact, uh, the essay that he wrote for the London Spectator is the uh, lead uh, article in this uh, book,
0: And, and, Father, talk, talk for a moment about the significance of that Latin title, Pell Contramundum. Um, I mean, you include three addresses here by Cardinal Pell, all given in the last six months of his life. But go ahead. Tell me about the title. Why yes. that?
1: Yes. Well, of course, Pell Contramundum is a play on the Athanasius Contramundum, because remember that Athanasius, um, was very concerned at the Council of Nicaea when the whole world, Jerome said, the whole world woke up and found itself Arian. So, this, the Arian heresy was the denial of the deity of Jesus Christ, a very core, fundamental part of the church's deposit of revelation. And, and, um, Athanasius fought against that, uh, under very difficult circumstances. He was exiled twice, and the phrase emerged, Athanasius Contramundum. So I saw that this was exactly the role that Pell was playing, and I wanted to ensure that his voice would still be heard Mm -hmm. at this synod, which is why this book is published in four languages and has been distributed to every cardinal throughout the world.
0: You contributed your own essay to the book, as did George Weigel and the Archbishop of Bombay, Cardinal uh, Gracias, you mentioned him earlier. And uh, in that essay by Cardinal Gracias, titled George Pell White Martyr, um, he goes into some of the uh, really delicate and, and heartbreaking details of the time Pell spent in prison in Australia for crimes he didn't commit and how that shaped the man he yes. would become in his final years
1: of his life. Reflect on that essay if
0: you would. Uh,
1: well. He pointed out the four hundred and four days were like a retreat for pell that 's what Pell said, and it produced these three volumes of very uh, rich spiritual reflections uh, on his time in prison and what you see there in in yeah you know, very mundane reflection uh, uh, on his time there and uh, his attachment to the truth of Jesus Christ. Um, so, uh, I think it's a very powerful witness in that he comes out without rancor, without hatred, uh, and, uh, toward anyone. And, uh, mm-hmm. he's a great model in that Cardinal gracious who knew the man well and didn't always agree with him, uh, acknowledges that. Yeah,
0: in your essay, Father, you write uh, the essential question Pell labored to raise in his last days comes down to this: Does the Church exist by virtue of a divine mandate, a deposit of faith entrusted to the apostles, intended from the beginning to be handed down faithfully from one generation to another intact? Father, up until now, it seems that Cardinal Pell and we in the Church would count on that continuity and good what do you think is the answer to that question today now as this synod closes
1: well this is what we all pledge this is what we pledge in our our baptismal uh, promises at Easter we pledge it in our priestly ordinations this is the fundamental of the faith and this is being explicitly negotiated away in the name of modern research and openness and walking with people. Now we want to be open to people. We want uh, to walk with people who are hurt. We want to embrace those who are on the margins. It's not a question of whether we love people or don't love people. It's a a question of whether we uh, propose to them the truth of Jesus Christ. And the truth of Jesus Christ is stable. It's dependable and it is unalterable and it can be developed and applied in different circumstances of course but we have to have that uh, continuity of teaching and the safeguards around that which and in that essay I also draw the connection to Newman because uh, in many ways Pell was like a Newman He, uh, he was not afraid to engage the issues of his day he was in court uh, Newman was in court, uh, he um, wrote himself into the Catholic Church precisely on this point of the development of Christian doctrine. How does it authentically mm-hmm. develop? How does it go from the implicit to the explicit? Not a change or a reversal of its teaching and its insight, but an amplification and a clarification of the truths of the faith. That's what Newman mm-hmm. was about. Mm-hmm. That's precisely what Pell was about. And Newman, you'll remember, was called the silent father of the Second Vatican Council. My Mm -hmm. effort is to ensure that Pell's voice is here, that he is here as a silent father of the Synod.
0: Before we go, you include an essay written by Cardinal Pell right before he passed. It was published posthumously. It was titled, The Catholic Church Must Free Itself From This Toxic Nightmare, referencing the Synod it includes the ominous warning to his brother bishops quote the synods have to choose whether they are servants and defenders of the apostolic tradition on faith and morals or whether their discernment compels them to assert a sovereignty over catholic teaching so far the synodal way has neglected indeed downgraded the transcendent Covered up the centrality of Christ with appeals to the Holy Spirit and encouraged resentment, especially among the participants. Father Farico, the first portion of this Synod on Synodality is wrapping up next week. How prophetic are those words and what do you want readers to take from this pell mundum this book?
1: A- astoundingly prophetic. I mean he he nails it completely. Remember, he died uh, in in January. there's almost a year. And he nailed the thing precisely. And this is a call to bishops to be bishops, to be another Athanasius, to stand against the trends. And uh, I think this is what's up for Grebs. You know, it's they're, they're not really even having any theological debates. And that's not an accusation on my part. That's, that's their self-definition of what's going on here. By them, I mean the organizers. I think there's mm-hmm. a subterranean concern I have heard. I've met with many bishops over the time that I've been here in Rome. And there is concern. They're trying to be prudent and certainly respectful of the office of the Holy Father. But... Um, We'll see what happens in the next few days. I, I, I know that there's tension in certain places.
0: Yeah. Uh, we'll see how all this shakes out. And again, this is the greatest uh, cliffhanger ever because you've got to wait a full year for anything to happen. So we will leave it there. Pell Contra Mundum, edited by Father Robert Sirico, is available now at bookstores everywhere and online. Father, thank you for being here.
1: Good to be with you, Raymond.
0: November has arrived, and I have some amazing news, and really, I have to thank you all. My new Christmas Merry and Bright CD has landed on the Billboard Jazz and Holiday Charts. It remains at the top, the best-selling jazz CD on Amazon, all due to you, and I thank you. You can get your copy... At the EWTN catalog, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Music, Spotify, wherever you get your music, download it, buy it, get it, a hard copy, have at it. I can't wait to share this wonderful music with you and your families as well on the concert tour. We're kicking off Saturday, November 25th, that's Thanksgiving weekend in Phoenix, Arizona. Then Sunday, December 3rd, I'm at the House of Blues in Dallas, Friday, December 8th, the Straz Center in Tampa, Friday, December 15th in Cleveland in the grand finale. Thursday, December 21st at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. Jose Feliciano will be with me in Dallas and Nashville. Frankie Avalon joins me in Cleveland. And boy, do I have some incredible surprise guests for you. Go to RaymondArroyoChristmas.com for links to tickets. And please tell your family and friends, come out to see us. It's going to be incredible. It will make your Christmas, I think, merry and bright. I was really heartbroken this week to learn of the passing of legendary film director and my friend, William Friedkin. He died in Los Angeles on August 7th at the age of 87. And Billy, as many of you know, won a Best Picture Oscar for the 1971 classic, The French Connection. And he's best remembered for his 73 blockbuster, The Exorcist, on which he collaborated with my other dear pal, the late William Peter Blatty. I sat down with Billy Friedkin numerous times to interview him for this show. It was always a joy. We spent time at his home. He was just uh, insightful, irascible, endlessly engaging, and a true rock on tour until the end. I'm most glad to have been able to call him a friend. Here are some of the great moments I had with Billy Friedkin over the years. In 2015, we talked about his amazing life and career, first making a name for himself as a documentary filmmaker and what The Exorcist was really about. Spoiler alert, he called it the mystery of faith. Let me start with, when you go now to a mm. movie theater, what are you looking for? Um,
2: intensity. Uh, something that, I, that will hold me mm. and um, will make me a part of the story, a part of the characters. Most of, I don't see a lot of films now. Most mm. of the films I see... Uh, that are made today yeah. um, lack any real passion. Huh. They're called um, projects now yeah. in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. They're not referred to as fi- as movies, let alone films. Yeah. They're all projects, series, um... and, and well, they're designed, you know, just to. Um, attract the largest number of viewers which is a good thing Mm -hmm. but I remember a time when films could be considered a work of art. Mm -hmm. I don't see that
0: now. I was stunned to read that the father of The Exorcist the French Connection, Bug would say the MGM musical is the spine of the American film. Explain that to me.
2: The MGM musical, the great Musicals of the late 40s and early through the middle 50s mm-hmm. really represent the best that American films have ever made. I they agree. were all turned out by a studio, MGM, mm-hmm. in a kind of factory yeah. manner. Um, they were all vehicles for people like Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly, mm-hmm. but to me, they're absolute perfection in every way. Mm-hmm. The photography, the choreography, yeah. the music—God knows—was by the people who created the American songbook: yeah. Gershwin, Cole Porter, Rodgers and Hart, Rodgers and Hammerstein, yeah. and the 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 dances are, are. That's something that's gone from American film. Yeah. Uh, it's not that. Um, people wouldn't like them anymore, and they've moved on. It's that nobody can do that. There weren't many of them. There might have been maybe a dozen. But to me, they still represent Mm. as close as one can come to perfection in filmmaking. I want to talk about your
0: incredible career and take you back to working at- Why lower the level? No, no, I'm taking it up a notch here. I'm continuing. Mm -hmm. This is called the continuum. Uh, You worked at WGN in Chicago and started doing a lot of live television. What did you learn there that you later utilized and that colored your work to the present day?
2: Television uh, production is um, very different from film production, Mm -hmm. and especially the kind of television programs that I did. They were largely interview programs, panel shows, news programs, sports, Mm -hmm. um, a little bit of drama, a little bit of variety. Uh, But the techniques are totally different uh, from film techniques. What I learned, the main thing I learned when I started in the mailroom of a television station, which was WGN, WGN, and worked my way up to live television director, was that it's very much of a team effort and it's all about communication. In order to get what you want, I learned back then in the late 50s and early 60s, you have to be able to communicate your ideas um, to a crew and a cast before you can communicate to an audience. And what it's all about is communication. The idea of making a film or putting something on television is about communicating with an audience, and that's all it's about. The difference is this, Raymond, but the painter, the writer, the composer are working alone. The film director is working with a two-ton pencil. You know, um, literally at times, thousands of people on some films, it's a collaborative effort mm-hmm. whereas the other art forms are not.
0: Uh, you met with Blake Edwards about a script treatment he had of Peter Gunn mm-hmm. he let you read it and at that moment you met someone who would become a major collaborator in a future work but you were not too hot on the script. I didn't like the script. It were, The script simply said
2: by Blake Edwards uh-huh. who I had great admiration for. Mm-hmm. I thought then and think now he was one of the great American directors Mm -hmm. and I was a kid who had done one little film with Sonny and Cher (laughs) I told Blake I read his script with great interest and thought it was terrible and when I said there was a bunch of people in the room Uh, many of them were sitting in shadows around (laughs) this enormous office Blake had Mm -hmm. at Paramount and after I would said to Blake, I didn't like the script, I thought it was terrible, and he thanked me uh, for letting him meet an interesting person. <laughs> and as I was leaving, this guy followed me out of the office on the Paramount lot, and he introduced himself, and he said, I'm Bill Blatty. And he said, uh, I'm the guy who wrote that script. And I said, What? It says, says by Blake Edwards. He said, well, Blake often does that. He said, but you know, you were right. I think you were right. The script does need a lot of work. We have all said the same thing to Blake, but he doesn't want to hear that. And um, I admire you for your honesty. And I said, well, thank you very much. We shook hands, and that was it. That was it. And four years later, he sent me uh, the manuscript of his
0: novel, The Exorcist. You read The Exorcist in a San Francisco, was it a hotel? It came it's a to hotel, hotel
2: room that overlooked the entire Bay Area. Hmm. And you thought what as
0: you sat to read
2: that? I story? thought it was really a, a very uh, powerful and important piece of work. Hmm. I thought, first of all, this is a great read. You know, th- this is a wonderful story, very well handled. The characters were well drawn. Hmm. It was uh, about the mystery of faith, which you don't read too many no- popular novels coming along that deal with the idea of faith in a, in a way that can be comprehended. Mm-hmm. And it was a disturbing and powerful story. And I, I was reluctant to read it. I carried it with me on a... I was on the road Uh doing interviews for the French Connection, which hadn't come out yet. Mm It was about to. And the end of my tour was San Francisco, and I opened the book. And I started to read it, canceled my dinner plans, and Blatty included his phone number at the uh, bottom of the letter he sent me. And I called him, and I said, This is great. And he asked me if I'd be interested in making the film.
0: Bill Blatty always considered this, the book and the subsequent film, an apostolic work. One that would awaken people to the nature of evil and, by proximity, the nature of good and faith. Mm -hmm. Did you
2: see it the same way? I agree with that. Um, But we came at it from a different Mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. Bill came as a believing Catholic, which he is. And I come to it as someone who believes in the teachings of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. as they're recorded in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made the film as a believer, not in all the tenets of the church, right. as Bill does, mm-hmm. but in the teachings of
0: Jesus. Yes, that's, uh, that's still my position. Do you think that's why it has had the staying power and still has the resonance it has, spiritually speaking? You watch that film today. There is no doubt we are seeing the clash of not only good actors and great special effects, but there's something else happening there that between that film and the viewer.
2: Yes, it is a film about the constant presence of good and evil in, in all of our lives. Mm-hmm. From the beginning of time, mm-hmm. Cain and Abel, you know, the, the constant... Pre- the, the Garden of Eden, The Serpent, mm. uh, there, was always, there has always been... A powerful demonic force attempting to undo the work of the creator throughout all of history. There has always been, you know, whether he's called the devil or the adversary Mm -hmm. or whatever, there has always been this clash of good and evil. It has always been the the burden of goodness to triumph
0: over the threat of evil. Do you see that as a through line that runs through all your work, that, that notion you just articulated?
2: Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Hmm. Let's go back and talk about the French connection. It is, even when you watch it today, it is so gritty. It feels so real. A lot of these scenes, though, particularly the chase, they were real. You didn't get permissions. You didn't get clearances for any of this. No. Tell me how that happened well, we, and I, how you did it without getting arrested. Well, I had the cops on my side
2: (laughs) because it was a story about police heroism. Ah. And every off-duty police officer in New York helped to protect the set. Mm. And they were all carrying their badges. And in case I got stopped for breaking every imaginable traffic law (laughs) and other laws in the making of that film, Mm -hmm. I had the cops around me to protect me
0: there's something you say in the book there is an outlaw quality in so many of your works particularly the french connection the exorcist and and what i mean by that is this and you you at the end of your book you write good and evil coexist in me in all of us and i believe it's a constant struggle for our better angels to prevail this is a theme in all my films and remain, remains a personal struggle But I've been blessed with a loving, devoted wife and two wonderful sons I dearly love, and they constantly help me suppress my darker impulses. In spite of all the gifts God has given me, I still occasionally harbor anger and resentment. My salvation is to channel them into my work. How is anger and resentment channeled into the exorcist?
2: Well, first of all, uh, I would take out one word if I was editing that today, and that would be occasionally. Okay. <laughs> uh, like everyone else I know, mm-hmm. I harbor all of the worst qualities of humankind. I believe they are built into our DNA. Um, I'm drawn to stories on film in which the characters exhibit those qualities. Mm. I'm not drawn to comedies yeah. or love stories or kind of, you know, mindless um uh film superhero <laughs> antics. Uh, no, I, I don't I can't even watch that stuff. I just don't believe it. I don't huh. buy it. Many others do mm. and that's fine. Mm-hmm. The film industry uh is built today on the, uh, on the idea of superheroes and supervillains. Mm. And I'm much more interested In human nature the Mm. proper study of mankind is man and I guess to put it in a simple sentence the thing that attracts me uh, more than anything about humankind is what Isaiah Berlin called the crooked timber of humanity Mm. I just um, make films about characters whose natures I think I understand. Mm-hmm. That's all.
0: You made a leap to opera directing. Now, this is a very different uh, box of tricks and an entirely different approach. You can control everything in film. The angle, the, the, the lighting, the delivery. You can do retake. Stage is such a different animal. Why did you decide to take on operatic directing? Uh, I've done about 15
2: operas in about 15 years. I've done some of the great operas ever written mm-hmm. in some of the great opera houses of the world. Not all. But it is it is not all that different. Really? The great singers that I've had the privilege of working with want the same thing as good actors. They want a psychological underpinning for their characters mm-hmm. and a staging that works. Mm-hmm. You don't have a camera. That's the main difference. I- directing opera but you still working with the actor singers in the same way they want to give a performance they don't simply want to come out and give a concert mm-hmm. because the great operas all tell a story and have characters i can emphasize characters or de-emphasize them by the way i stage them with someone in the foreground or the background or the way i light them the, way, the manner in which I set
0: them. There was a moment in Puccini's great Suor Angelica that you directed where the Angel of Mercy appears in that production. Yes. And so many people I know who saw it, not all Catholic, were stunned by that moment. You had a major war with the composer over this. Not the composer, he's been dead. I mean, dead the, the, the conductor, for, I'm sorry, for, that's for right. almost for 100 years, Raymond. <laughs> Puccini's a little dusty right. at this point.
2: Uh, I had a conductor. big problem with the conductor, James Conlon, who's mm-hmm. a highly regarded conductor of opera. Mm-hmm. And he's the permanent conductor of the L.A. opera. Right. And he came to me when uh, I was setting up, because in the finale of Suar Angelica, Suare Angelica asks for the mercy of the Mother of Christ. And in Puccini's libretto, he says the mother of mercy appears. Mm. He doesn't say a shadow of the cross goes across (laughs) the stage, a stained glass window lights up. (laughs) He says the mother of mercy appears. Mm. And I decided to make that moment real. (laughs) And the conductor, Conlon, said to me, "Uh, listen, he took me aside. He said, you know, I had a Catholic education and I don't believe that stuff anymore. Mm. And uh, he said, "I wish you wouldn't do that." And I said, "Jim, I I don't uh, really want to remind you of this, but this story's <laughs> not about you or what you believe or don't believe or what my what I believe or don't believe." I said, "I know you read music and conduct it beautifully, but can you read a libretto?" <laughs> Can you read where it says here, the mother of mercy appears? That's what I'm doing. Mm. And after we did it, there was not a dry eye in the house. Mm. Men in tuxedos were weeping. Mm. Every woman in the house, non-believers. And Placido Domingo, who's the director of the L.A. Opera Company, said to me, Billy, tonight you have made all of Los Angeles Catholic.
0: In 2018, Billy Friedkin returned to the show to talk about the 45th anniversary of The Exorcist and his return to the theme of demonic possession, for real this time, with his documentary, The Devil and Father Amort. I was even treated to a walking tour of Georgetown's Exorcist locations with the master himself. Watch.
2: Father Amort begins every exorcism by thumbing his nose at the devil. In the room are Christina's family and other priests to assist Father Amort.
0: Joining me now is the Academy Award-winning director of the French Connection and The Exorcist to discuss his new documentary, The Devil and Father Amort. Would you welcome back to the program William Friedkin. Thanks, Raymond. Great to see you. Always Bill. good to see you. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Uh, I want to first talk about something, clear something up for me. I read the New York Times last week. Maureen Dowd said that you claimed the 1949 case that The Exorcist is based upon was, quote, jive. What I does didn't that mean? say
2: that I claimed it was jive. The 1949 case, which took place in, Silver, uh, in Cottage City, Maryland, mm-hmm. misreported huh. as, as Silver, Silver Spring, Spring right. and a bunch of other places. There's no evidence for that. There's no proof. Mm. What inspired Bill Blatty to write The Exorcist were reports of that case, ah. news reports that said this had happened. This had happened, and it was a case of possession mm-hmm. and a successful exorcism. Mm-hmm. Now, that just passed along into history without people bothering to do a lot of research about mm-hmm. it. One fellow did and wrote a story that you can see on Wikipedia, yeah. which is definitive. It's called The Haunted Boy of Cottage City, Maryland, mm-hmm. and it's pretty authentic. Huh. And I believe over the years that I'm not saying that the case didn't happen the way it was reported, but the fact that it was reported was what influenced Blatty. Right. He did not use any of the characters. No. Or the he didn't circumstances. Use the place. Yeah. The circumstance and he obviously had never seen an exorcism.
0: Mhm. Amazing. Now Bill said he came into possession of one of the priest's one of the exorcist's diaries l- years later.
2: That's what I've been told.
0: Did you ever see that?
2: No, but I you know, I've been told by Bill's wife mm-hmm. that th- she still has the diary of the priest who did the exorcism, mm-hmm. Father William Bowdern, at mm-hmm. Alexian Brothers Hospital in St. Louis. Wow. In 1949.
0: This week we visited a few of the iconic Georgetown locations featured in The Exorcist, and Mr. Friedkin gave us insight into each location. Bill, why this house? Why did you choose this house as the house where The Exorcism was going to take place? This is
2: the house that Blatty had in mind when he wrote the novel. It was the closest house to the steps, but as you'll see, it wasn't close enough. But it was the house. This is the exterior of the house where we filmed The Exorcist. It's 3,600 Prospect in Georgetown. As you will see in a moment, it is not anywhere near enough to the steps, which are a good, I don't know, 25 to 30 yards away. So what we did, that fence was not there. We had to put up this fence for her later to protect the house, but that fence wasn't there. What we did was we built a false front and a false extension from the end of that house to where the stairs begin. A lot of scenes shot at that front door, both looking out this way and looking back into the house. This is the beginning of the area of the Exorcist steps. 75 steps from just a few feet away to the bottom. Uh, the false front came out to here, where these trees are. The girl's bedroom window is just up there, where I'm pointing, right up here. And the stuntman went out a window in the sound stage first. He jumped from the little girl's bedroom window in the sound stage, and it finished off with a shot of him coming out that window right above me, which looked exactly like the house was extended this far. The stuntman came out of where I showed you, and he landed on that first landing. That's pretty far. All of the steps and the corners were padded with rubber. So he was landing on a padded surface, and he was all padded, but it was an incredible jump. From right up there, where I just showed you, to the first landing, where he hit. And that's the only place from which I filmed the jump. I also rigged a camera, There's a shot in the sequence, if you see it again, where I rigged a camera on wires to go out the window so it looks like a POV shot. All the way to the bottom where that gentleman is now and over that plate is where Father Karras dies in a pool of blood and receives the last rites
0: from his friend, Father Dyer. Now, why 45 years later would William Friedkin go back and focus again on something you said you'd never focus again on in film? And I quote you, I would never do anything with demonic possession or exorcism in it. Why do this documentary now?
2: Because I believe in its authenticity Mm -hmm. and I would never do anything, I, I still say, in fiction I would never do a fiction version of it again. Mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to meet Father Amort quite Mm -hmm. by accident. I asked him if I could interview him for Vanity Fair magazine. Mm -hmm. He gave me a long, it turned out to be 6,500-word interview for Vanity Fair. That's a book. Yeah, (laughs) and it was reprinted everywhere. Mm -hmm. And during the course of the interview, he's the most spiritual man I've ever met, Raymond. Mm -hmm. And I asked him at the end of the interview if he would ever allow me to witness an exorcism, mm. thinking he would not. And he said, well, let me think about it. And a couple of days later, I got an email from his, uh, the head of the Pauline order in Rome, mm-hmm. who said that Father Amort would allow me to witness an exorcism on May 1st of 2016. Wow. And I had originally met him in March. So... Uh, once he said, okay, you can witness this, which permission is never granted, right, never. I can tell you, never, and rightly so. Mm-hmm. Um, I then pushed my luck and said, well, would you let me film it, Father? Mm. And word came back two days later saying you could film it, but alone, with no crew and no lights. Huh. So I went in with a little still camera that shoots high-definition video and sh- and sat two feet away from them while they were doing it.
0: Wow. Now, you say the exorcism, and Bill Blighty used to tell me the same thing. The exorcist, he said, is about the mystery of faith. Is that what this documentary, The Devil and Father of
2: To some great extent, certainly. I mean... There's no proof of anything, Raymond. Mm -hmm. There is not one person in this entire world that knows the greatest philosophers, religious scholars, whatever, Mm -hmm. do not know if there is a heaven, a hell, an afterlife, why we were born, what our purpose is here. It's never going to be revealed Mm -hmm. until, let us assume, there is an afterlife. Mm -hmm. But Bertrand Russell... Teilhard de Chardin, uh, all were offering informed opinion and belief, mm-hmm. but there's no hard evidence. If you if you need a fact, there are those who need to have their hands in the blood mm-hmm. in order to mm-hmm. believe. Now, I have tremendous faith in the teachings of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ. but. I don't know anything, and neither do people a thousand times smarter than me.
0: Mm. Give me a sense of the, what this means to you as a filmmaker. you started your career doing a documentary about a man on death row, The People versus Paul Crump. And here you are, all these years later, doing another documentary focused really on the thing you're probably best known for as a filmmaker. Exorcism, The Exorcist. Why make that journey? Any trepidation about turning this into a film once you had the footage of the real exorcism?
2: Yes, and I didn't know what I was going to do with it. Mm -hmm. I filmed it because Father Amort allowed me to film it, Mm -hmm. and the woman and her family said, okay. Mm. Uh, Then I thought, well, what? I didn't think I would make a documentary out of it. I -hmm. thought I would have this to show to interested people. Hmm. And then I got the thought to take it to some of the leading brain surgeons in the country and the leading psychiatrists.
0: Why did you do that?
2: Well, I felt that they would either debunk it
0: Hmm.
2: and or explain
0: in medical and psychological terms what it was. Hmm. What did Father Amort and his lifelong example teach you, not about evil, but about good? That a man was there willing to devote his
2: skills and his life to helping to liberate people of what they believed had them completely in check Mm -hmm. and in choke. Mm -hmm. Their lives were not their own and they went to Father Amort as a last resort Mm. and he liberated many of them.
0: But he never believed he did the liberation.
2: They always call upon Jesus to do the exorcism. That's what the prayer is. It's not the priest as come uh, out of there. As yeah. in my film at one point saying, I cast you out. Mm-hmm. It's Jesus that they're praying to to cast out the demon. Mm. And that's what Father Mort believed, and I
0: believed in him mm. and still do. What do you want people to take away from this project after seeing this film? What do you hope it's going to come? Well, it was better said
2: by Shakespeare Mm -hmm. in his play Hamlet when he had Hamlet say to Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio. Mm -hmm. And that's my belief. Mm -hmm. I believe there's just so many things that I don't know or understand but I'm still curious about Mm -hmm. but don't know or understand. And hopefully this... Film, which is not fiction at all, not special effects, not does not set out to terrify you, or show you outrageous events. Mm-hmm. The the possession enough is outrageous enough, but I believe that this film is a a, a doorway into that, mm. into more things in heaven and earth. And one of the doctors in the film that I interviewed, who I showed the exorcism to. Said, well, and he's the man who's in charge of brain mapping, Mm -hmm. said, well, just because we don't believe in something or know something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Uh, It's kind of a double negative, but it's true nevertheless. We don't know about this, but that doesn't mean it isn't true or doesn't have a name or will not get another name later like radiation. Right. You know, they knew nothing about it when it occurred. Now it's a field of study.
0: Mm. William Friedkin, always a pleasure. Thank you. Raymond. Thank you. I look forward to the next project, and we'll have you back.
2: I always love to come back and to watch this
0: great show. Thank you. You're very kind. Thank you. Thank you, Raymond. My my dear pal, the great William Friedkin, rest in peace. And I know he's arguing with our friend Bill Blatty. And The Magnificent Mischief of Tad Lincoln, my new book, is available now in bookstores. It's a story of finding hope and joy in dark times. Uh, Tad Lincoln's Magnificent Mischief really saved his father in many ways. And it's a good reminder to parents, to all of us, about the power of a child, not only to create a national tradition, but in our families, in our lives. It's available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, the EWTN bookstore, wherever you get your books. Go to RaymondArroyo.com for more details. And a group of nuns has gathered to record a new CD of music dedicated to the Blessed Sacrament. The sisters have teamed with De Montfort Music, Sophia Music Group, to bring us Adoration from Carmel, Eucharistic hymns from the Carmelite Sisters of the Most Sacred Heart of Los Angeles. A member of their community, Sister Gianna Heinemann, is here to tell us more about it. Sister Gianna, thank you for being here. Uh, we'll get to the new CD in a moment, but uh, tell me about your community. The Carmelite Sisters are the most sacred heart of Los Angeles. Um, give me a sense of the community and its apostolates.
3: Well, our community was um, founded from, our mother founders came from Mexico during the religious persecution in the 1920s and 30s, and she came to Los Angeles, and uh, wanted to find a safe haven for her sisters. And so we have been here for 95 years, um, and we are a, a bit of a unique version of Carmel. As you may imagine, we're semi-cloistered, meaning that we, um, we do have our life of Carmel, our life of prayer, uh, but we have active works also. Whereas other cloistered Carmelite communities, they don't leave their monastery. Um, But we have the traditional life of prayer. And then we serve in education, Mm -hmm. in uh, retreat work, and in health care for the elderly.
0: Hmm. Now, Sister Gianna, obviously uh, a, a part of your service is music and the chant. And I know that plays an important role in your liturgical lives. How important is music to the community? And how does music reflect your devotion to the Eucharist?
3: That's a great question. Well, we begin our day, um, our day is ordered, or we call it our aurarium, is beginning with music and ending with music. Um, In the morning, our sister, uh, who rings the rising bell, wakes us, and so the very first thing coming out of our mouths and. As we exit out of sleep, is song, and she's calling us to the chapel. So, um, we begin before the Blessed Sacrament, and we end before the Blessed Sacrament at night, um, praying Compline together.
2: Mm-hmm. So,
3: singing is of the essence um, of our of our life um, in the Mass. In Eucharistic Adoration and um, the Divine Office. Mm.
0: The new CD is called Adoration from Carmel, Eucharistic Hymns. Uh, It was recorded in your own St. Joseph's Chapel, and it consists of both traditional and contemporary arrangements. Um, How are these 16 selections chosen, sister? And what's the significance of these pieces of music that made their way onto the CD?
3: Well, we wanted to compile a a selection of of music that's really flowing from our prayer, um, what we do every day out of our um, devotion to the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. And um, especially with our community, we have a focus on devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. So Mm. what you'll hear on this CD is... Um, just the ancient tried and true uh, songs of love to the Lord and the Blessed Sacrament, like "Pani Panis Angelicus, Soul of My Savior. Mm. Um, and then we also, we thought about the people in the National Eucharist Revival, just mm. picturing them sitting in the pew before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, and we wrote songs with them in mind and with the Lord in mind and all the graces he wants to pour mm. out upon us during this time. So we have some, some of the ancient and the well-known and then mm. a few that are born from our own prayer.
0: I love it. Here's a bit of the Carmelite Sisters of the Most Sacred Heart. Adoration from Carmel. Listen. So beautiful. This is not the sister's first CD, though. Uh, the community recorded its first album back in 1996. Sister Gianna, what's special about this new CD and how are listeners reacting? Well,
3: what's special about this new CD is uh, it's not original in the sense of creative. It's ordinary to our Carmelite way of life. But what we're allowing you to do is step inside of our chapel and um, as it were, sit in the pew with us um, or kneel and adore the Lord. So we just, the way we recorded this CD is unique to our um, other albums that we've done. We recorded in our chapel and the Lord and the Blessed Sacrament was there. And um, it's just an authentic rendering of, of our way of life Mm. and, I really love that every once in a while you can hear a, a rosary bead jingle because we're getting into the music and we're singing and just loving the Lord in praise and together with our voices.
0: Well, I hope the audio engineer agrees with you sister. You know sometimes they get touchy about the, <coughs> you know the little tings and the clicks happening in the background. But we'll leave it there. Adoration from Carmel, Eucharistic hymns from the Carmelite Sisters of the Most Sacred Heart of Los Angeles is available now at music outlets everywhere and online. For more information, you can go to sophiamusicgroup.com. Sister Gianna, thanks so much for being with us.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: That's all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.